All right, good evening, welcome. So you guys learned your lesson from last time. I didn't, even, I didn't have to say anything, technically. You all just moved up a little bit. But good job. And welcome back. In tonight's lesson, it's going to be the, the final in this Biblical Leadership Series. By the way, I believe Oliver is in a meeting, so we'll, we'll uh, go without some music tonight. We'll get that next week. But it's going to wrap up the Biblical Leadership Series. It's a final, it's a two-parter, but this is the final lesson in the series. And I think it's only fitting for us to end here. It's been somewhat of a practical goal, how to lead a small group. That's what this is, lesson 16, how to lead a small group. And a large part of the reason I want to do some of this teaching on biblical leadership was just to start providing the biblical foundation for uh, training up and raising up people to lead small groups here at this church. It's a kind of a goal we have of getting a small group ministry started. And so this will, will serve as a good, you know, final entry into that training process. So let me open a word of prayer and we'll begin this uh, study for tonight. Our Father in heaven, we just ask for you to, to bless this time, and, and we mean that. Give us a, attentive ears and, and minds and hearts to learn what your word has to say about well, leading others. We're here because we, we want to learn about biblical leadership, what it is, what it means to be a biblical leader, what, what the leader is to do, and in this case, to learn really about personal discipleship and how we can impact others in a smaller group setting. And there's great value there, in your, as your word teaches, that we can do so many of the one another's in a, in a smaller setting. Some drawbacks, but we want to learn the, the right way to do it. Just uh, Our heart is in the right place just to help others grow into Christ's image. And so just bless our study that we can learn how to do that in a small setting. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as a, a final reminder or recap, we started this series by covering the character of biblical leadership. You kind of like the book of Ephesians. It starts off the first three chapters, who we are in Christ. It doesn't just jump out and tell us, here's 10 things to do. The first lays the foundation, here's who we are in Christ. And then and only then does it cover in the last half, now here's what we are to do in light of who we are. And likewise, in this biblical leadership series, we didn't just want to rush to the things to do, here's what the leader does, here's the activities, here's the roles of a leader. That's important, but we started with first the character. What makes a biblical leader? Who is he? What does he look like? What qualifies the leader? What identifies the leader? And we did that over nine lessons. Now we're in the back half of this study. And uh, now we don't want to neglect the practicals, the how-to, the role of the leader. What is that role? What are some of his key tasks? And then how do you do these? And granted, we'd only go so far, but given the priorities of the biblical leader, we've been studying some of the main roles and the duties or the tasks of the biblical leader in the church. And uh, even with an eye toward the lay leader. And so we've included in some of these how-to studies how to study the Bible, how to teach the Bible, how to biblically counsel, how to reprove and rebuke, how to shepherd, how to disciple, and we're going to include now how to lead a small group, which like I mentioned before, that's been one of the practical goals of this study overall, just provide that entry-level training for some of you and for perhaps even more in the future listening online of uh, small group leadership. Now, when you mention a small group in the context of a local church, different things come to mind for different people. Depending on their church background, whatever experience you have, that's just going to be your framework for thinking about small groups. They go by many names, and they have different flavors, life groups, life stage groups, discipleship groups, growth groups, men's groups, women's groups, accountability groups, Bible study groups, tribe groups, just they're all over. In essence, though, we're talking about pretty much the same thing, just taking all that we've learned in the past about shepherding and discipleship, we're just applying it to a small setting, a more personal, small group setting. That's what we're after here. There's plenty of room for corporate shepherding, corporate discipleship. That's what we do on Sundays. Our corporate gathering, we we do corporate shepherding, corporate discipleship. But there's still plenty of room for personal shepherding, and more personal discipleship, and there's a lot of value there as well. In fact, I'll start with a question. What are some of the benefits of engaging in shepherding and discipleship at a smaller, more personal level? Some of the benefits of engaging in shepherding and discipleship at a smaller, more personal level. Can you think of any? Yeah, just like you right now. 
People aren't afraid to speak up. They would get some feedback, some participation, willingness to engage more in the material. Yes, it, it can become two-way. On a Sunday morning, you might get to know me a little bit, but I'm not going to know any of you. It's, it's not as personal just by the, by the uh, arena. What else? Some of the benefits of a smaller group in ministry and discipleship. Yeah, that's very, we'll talk about that certainly to come. That application, what to do with what we've learned. The church, it's a broad setting, but a smaller group, you could really tailor that to the people right there, the three, four, five people in front of you. Any others come to your mind? Okay, accountability. There you go. Yeah, prayer, accountability. And now we're not, it's not just a, a Bible study per se or a sermon, but we now have an, an intention to live this out and help one another do it. That's a whole different level, and it's much needed in the church. Now, that being said, what about some drawbacks, some potential drawbacks to ministry in a small group, shepherding discipleship in a smaller group? Can you think of any there? Say again, Amy? What do you mean? Yeah, so like the click, the, the little the tribe, that they only stick together, and so it becomes a little mini church within a church. That definitely is a real danger that must be uh, guarded against, and that's a shepherding issue to, to watch out for, that the small groups don't turn into little various tribes, like the 12 tribes of Israel. They're all, they're all individual tribes. They're not very united, definitely. Think of any others? Yeah, anytime you let people, now that was a good comment, but it's, it's, it's risky when you ask questions, right? Because like you yourself said, someone could take it and run with it, take you off topic, take you somewhere you didn't intend to go, or dominate the time, or just, you know, with different personalities engaging, you have to be able to, to help manage that and to, to shepherd people through that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a drawback, but definitely a challenge that it's definitely going to be a time investment for the leader, for the participants. You're, you're investing your life in, in relationship, and that takes time. So, good. We're going to think through a lot more of the benefits and the drawbacks. But despite the potential drawbacks, like all ministry in the church, it just needs to be done right. And so to ensure that, we want to learn about small groups and eventually employ small groups by drawing on all the biblical foundation of leadership we've learned so far. So in a real sense, this final lesson does rest on so many of the lessons that we've covered so far about biblical leadership, what it takes to be the leader, and then the other practices of the leader. They really culminate in small groups, but of course it's applied in a small setting as opposed to a church-wide setting for the pastor. The small group leader is, is applying a lot of that just in a smaller setting. And in the end, whenever you label these groups, I don't really care, we're just talking about smaller personal discipleship and shepherding, you know, three to 10 people, whatever it's going to be, just some smaller group. But we still have questions. What exactly is involved in small group ministry? What do you do? How do you do it? How do you ensure the benefits? How do you avoid the drawbacks? It's, these are some of the things we want to find out. And tonight, this won't be as much of a Bible study as applying a lot of the principles we've already learned from lots of Bible study in the past. Maybe a little bit of both, but we're going to take many leadership principles that we've learned and, and apply them now to the small group leader. Paint that picture and just to talk about it. Like I said, it'll be a bit of a two-parter this week, next Sunday, and then we'll finish. But let's get started. First with small group goals. You can turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, just a, a recap Small group goals, they really shouldn't be any different than ministry goals, our goal and uh, goals in all of leadership and ministry, and indeed that is the case. This is just by way of a, a quick reminder. Colossians 1, 28 through 29, if you recall, it was one of our theme verses very early on, but what we're after, what we're trying to do in biblical leadership, what's the goal, the aim, the focus? This is one of many verses that puts it in a memorable way for us to, to think about. Paul relates his own ministry goal and mission. It's just speaking of Christ in the context, and he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. 
You learn from Paul's example, the focus of ministry, the proclamation of Christ, making Christ known. That was Colossians 1, 28, 29, by the way. Making Christ known. You see the means by admonishing and teaching with all wisdom. It's not just teaching, not just head knowledge, but there's admonishment. There's applying it to life, speaking to the heart. And then the goal in all this of, of proclaiming Christ, that we may present every person complete in Christ. That's to say mature, built up, conform to his image. We found this was the goal of really all ministry corporately. And it, it applies when you downscale it to personal ministry or small group ministry. The goal doesn't change. We have that same goal to help others grow in Christ, to pursue him, to know him, to delight in him, to walk with him, to follow him. It's, there should be a distinct Christ-centered flavor to all that we do in ministry and certainly in small groups. Christ is the focus. It's not just an occasion to hang out with some Christian friends and have a good time, though that should happen. But it's a Christ-centered time. We're here to, to know him, proclaim him, follow him, and learn to live like him, which is all to God's glory, and it's all to our benefit. This is just discipleship. We're, we're his disciples. We're helping people grow as his disciples, and that, that's what it looks like. So, you want the long version of this? This is way back into lesson two, the mission of biblical leadership. You can go back and get that longer version, but this is what we covered. The goal of small group ministry, it's no different than the goal of all leadership in the church to make disciples, present every person complete in Christ, to see them know and, and grow in their walk with Christ. So I think we can leave it at that. Let's move on to small group activities. The goal no different. It should be really solid in your mind after all that we've studied. Now I'll get a little more specific though. Small group activities. Okay, so you're going to have a small group gathering. Meet with three, four, five, six other believers in a smaller setting. What do you do? What do you do at that time? What should you do with that time? What makes this a useful ministry of the church? What, what would you do there that it's not done on a Sunday morning per se or a Sunday night? What's the benefit? There are plenty of small groups in the world, and they're centered around various activities like eating, singing, watching sports, going to events, reading books, knitting, playing games, emotional support. But of course, with our goal in mind, our goal is Christ-likeness, to promote Christ-likeness. That's obviously going to dictate what we do. It's not just going to be a, a social club for fun and games. That, that, that comes as a consequence of relationship but our, our intentionality with what we do, it's going to stem from our goal, trying to promote Christ-likeness here. So it actually makes quite clear what the activities of a small group should be. So we're going to cover three main activities and then three secondary activities. Just the, the things you do, you would do, you should do in a small group setting, a discipleship group setting. Three main, three secondary. So the first of the three main is Bible study. You know, the centrality of God's word as a tool of biblical leadership, that's been a, really a theme, a thread that has run through many of our lessons here on biblical leadership. And that should go without saying. The, the ministry of the word, the tool of the word, it's the primary means God has given for the growth of the church and the, the edification of the body. So that is, that is going to have a part to play in a small group. Shouldn't surprise you. And Christ himself was very concerned with the sanctification of the future church. And so he prayed accordingly. John 17, 17, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that we should be a word-centered people in, in all that we do. To see, and so we have a goal, even in small group ministries, to see others know Christ, to delight in him, to follow him, to walk like him. How can you really do that without some input from the word? What's going to make this distinctively Christian if we don't have some you know, input from Christ himself and his word, the mind of Christ? If you're in Colossians, go back to verses 9 and 10. We'll look, have you look at a few verses in Colossians. So you can just open there and leave it there. Now, Paul in his introduction mentions how he would pray for them, for these Colossian believers. And how is he praying? for them, for their growth. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. It says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you 
and ask that you may be, what, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a key passage, but you see the priorities where he prays first and foremost that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual understanding. That, that comes from God's word. You know his word. You know his will. That's the foundation, the platform from which the fruit emerges. He knows that if, when they're filled with the knowledge of his will, they're renewing their minds, they're walking by the spirit, they're going to please the Lord. They're going to bear fruit. They're going to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. So I don't really have to stress this to you guys. I know you know this, but you know, Bible study in some form needs to have a, a center stage role in, in a small group, in a discipleship group. We need some content, some input from God's word. And this, this is what fundamentally distinguishes a Christian small group from any other various small social group in the world. We're there to, to focus on Christ, to know him, to follow him, and we're going to do so by sitting at his feet and beholding his word, so to speak, right? This can take many forms in a small group, though. There's a lot of variety in the format. For example, you could have a, someone who's called and trained up as an actual Bible teacher. You could teach those four or five people a full-length message or lesson. Sure. You could also have a gifted teacher where he's not just one-way teaching, but he's walking them through an inductive Bible study where they're, it's really more self-discovery. They're studying themselves. He's guiding them through a self-study in the Word. You could use other materials where a facilitator could help them go through a, a prepared and presented Bible study where you're doing it together. You can even use really thoroughly biblical Christian books that uh, are, have you know, various topics that can be used as a resource for study and discussion, so long as they're obviously pointing back to God's Word. There's freedom in the format, so long as it can be said that there's some content that's feeding the people the Word of God that they may grow in respect to salvation. Now, we kind of touched on this before when I was asking some questions about the benefits of a small group. And you might think, well, look, we get a lot of Bible study already at this church, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. It's kind of a lot. Don't forget, though, the Bible is our middle name, so I don't know what you expected coming to Breen (laughs) Bible Church. But there's real value in small groups, especially when you have a Bible study presented in a small group format. So let me help you think through, you might say, four advantages to studying the Bible in a smaller setting. Four advantages, four real benefits, why this is not meant to compete or replace a Sunday morning sermon or a Sunday night lesson, but just how it can be a great addition to your, your input from the Word. Four advantages of studying the Word in a smaller group setting. First is the value of discussion which was mentioned before, the value of discussion. You know, in Sunday morning sermon, the format doesn't allow for discussion to really go through what you're learning in the Word. It's, it's one-way communication, preaching. It, is, it has great value, and we're commanded to have the, the Word preached in the church. But discussion has value as well. Just from an education standpoint, discussion really helps students learn the material better. It improves their engagement and critical thinking and it challenges them to really learn and interact with the material. Christ himself modeled this all the time. I'm sure he had many sermons, one-way communication, but he taught via questioning, discussion, going back and forth with his disciples all the time. Just read the Gospels and see how many times he's just asking them questions. He's enabling them to learn through a more discussion format, you might say. They might learn for themselves. Discussion also helps newer, younger believers to grapple with the truths of Scripture, giving them time to stop and pause, reflect, and think about what is being taught. In preaching, you know, we're just going to move forward. Whether you get left behind or not, you know, I hope you don't. I hope you're able to, to stay with us and track with us, keep yourself engaged. But at the same time, if, if, you, get, if you get left behind, we're, we're going to keep moving. We can't stop the whole train just to make sure you get every last point. But in discussion, there, that's not the case. There's room to make sure no one's getting left behind. Everyone understands what's being taught really before you move on. It's, it just has greater benefits to, uh, to learning in many respects. Secondly, the value of depth. The value of depth. 
Not to suggest we don't go in depth in a Sunday sermon, we, we do, but you can go even deeper in Bible study in a small group format because the Sunday sermon is limited by its audience. It's a very broad audience, limited by time as well. And so usually I'm not actually repeating most of the exegesis I have learned in my studies. I'm really giving you often, more often than not, the conclusion of everything I've studied just for the sake of time. Uh, giving you conclusions, but in a small group, you have time to walk through a text, cover all the details, study all the interpretations. Like there could be seven interpretations to a passage and which one's the right one, as opposed to that the preacher just telling you or giving you a few few notes and arriving at a conclusion. You can have the time to, to study the Bible, even learn how to study the Bible. How, how do you interpret? These are things that can, you can really learn a lot in a small group setting you have time. And within reason, small groups are also a great place for those rabbit trail discussions. Like I said, within reason, you don't want to lose and get way off track, but there's too much time, but you're studying Romans. The, the, the concept of justification comes up. Everybody knows it, but one person, he's like, what does that mean? You have the, the flexibility to say, you know, let's spend five, 10 minutes and just talk about what is justification and have a great little side topic right there for the benefit of that person. You just have the freedom to do that, and it's a great help, especially for younger believers where so much is new. We can stop the train, get off, look around for a little bit, get back on to you know, the main study, whatever it is. It's just the value of, of discussion, the value of depth. And third, the value of application. This too uh, was mentioned as well. The application on a Sunday morning sermon, it's going to cro- come across very general and very broad, and that's because it is. The audience is so mixed that we can't get into too many of the specifics unless we really just stop and we start calling out each stage of life and we give them their own specific application. Like, you know, the child, the junior high student, the high school student, the college student, the young adult, the single, the young married, the young parent, the middle-aged parent, the empty nester, the retiree, the grandparent, the senior saint. I mean, they're all at a different stage of life facing different issues, the word has one interpretation, but many applications and might apply to them in their stage of life differently than others. And so they, they might all find a different application to the text that's appropriate. There's not really so much room in the sermon to cover all that, though. The Puritans often did that. They would just preach for a short time and then spend the last you know, half of their message calling out every little subgroup in the church and giving the application. Sometimes we do that, but... More often, and I think a better setting is a small group where you can, uh, I think, uh, one of you over here was you, David, that said earlier, you can tailor the application to the people in your group. Often, not always, small groups are life stage related. So if you've got a little small group of you know, high school students, you can really tailor the Bible study and the application to the issues they face, what they're going through. And that's just a great benefit that you don't always get on a Sunday morning. And lastly is the value of feedback. We're talking about some of the benefits of studying the Bible in a smaller group setting. And here you have the value of feedback. And this one is from the leadership perspective. You have a little interactive small group. It can be a real shepherding asset because it's giving you feedback on how people are doing. It allows you to evaluate who's, who's really learning, who's growing, who's getting it, who's not getting it. You hear people discuss ask questions. You're discovering what they really believe, what their challenges are, where they have things right, where they might have things wrong. And you just, you just file that all away that you can help them grow in Christ's image. You can help, help them along. And, but it's just valuable feedback to where people are at. Everybody starts from somewhere. Everyone starts from usually, you know, let's say I had a Christian upbringing and came to the church later, but so many people come in with just, they're at ground zero. They don't know anything about the faith. And we'll patiently walk with them be just you hear what, what kind of baggage they have, what maybe uh, falsehoods they might believe. Whatever you hear, it's just useful feedback that you can direct uh, the word to help them grow and just to address whatever issues they might have. It's valuable feedback. So for these reasons and really many more, I don't think I have to convince you of the value of Bible study. Any regular Christian gathering should have some input from the word of God. It's what sets us apart from just other groups in the world. Like the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was the first mark, first thing that set them apart. 
They're just devoted to the Word. And we want that to be a, a hallmark of our small groups as well. Now let's move on now to the second main activity in a small group. Secondly, we'll, we'll throw in accountability. We'll mention accountability. I believe accountability is and really needs to be a vital element to any small group. And that's because in accountability, it's a major aspect of the Christian life, but it's, it's perhaps the, the thing emphasized the least in our corporate gatherings, just because it's, there's so many people, it's corporate. It's not always fostered on a Sunday morning, but a small group is a perfect outlet for this type of accountability that, that we need. Now, first off, you might wonder, what exactly is accountability? The word accountability is not in the Bible itself, but we use the word just to re- reference a great number of the many one another's that are in Scripture that just relate to how we are called to live life with one another, not by ourselves. Christian life is not a solo race. It's a corporate race, and we're called to help one another, hold one another accountable, basically. Accountability refers to how we live. Even in coming to Christ, we're not saved by works, but in coming to Christ, God still has a standard for how we are to live, how we are to please Him and grow in His word and will. So there's a standard for right and wrong behavior. And after salvation, we desire to grow in Christ-likeness, to please the Lord with our behavior. And ultimately, we're only accountable to God. We can't truly hold one another accountable as if we are their judge or arbiter. We're not. God's the only judge and father and discipliner. We're only accountable to him, ultimately, for how we live. But at the same time, God has given the church several commands that have as their goal helping one another, keeping one another accountable to God's standard for right living. He, he wants us. He's given leaders the, some of these commands in the church, but also just everybody, many of these commands, these one another's. He wants us to participate in helping one another run the race. Someone stumbles, help them up, help them along. You be the guardrails, keep them in track, keep them on the straight and the narrow way there's a great value in the church as a means of growth and sanctification. So let's survey a few of these. And the, the list of, is extremely long of all the one, and, uh, one another's in Scripture. But here's just a handful that we might relate to the concept of accountability, helping one another run the race. You can turn to Hebrews 10. I'll read a few of these. We might turn to a few of these, but you can turn to Hebrews 10. 23 through 25. As you're turning, I'll read for you James 5, 16. This passage comes up next Sunday, by the way, in the morning. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We're going to study that in depth next Sunday morning, but mutual confession and prayer for one another over their sins is actually prescribed in Scripture. And it's not confession in this you know, Catholic sense of absolving one another of guilt, but in the sense of accountability. We'll find out a lot more about that next Sunday. Hebrews 10, an important passage, 23 through 25. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, the author of Hebrews knows, especially as times get hard, the going gets tough, that it's, it's all too easy just to pull back, put your foot off the gas, distance yourself from the church. Some were starting to forsake the assembling together, make a habit out of forsaking the assembly, but he's calling on us and on God's people to to help one another, encourage one another, even more so as you see the day drawing near. How can you build up one another? Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good needs, uh, good deeds rather. That's something we need to do all the time. And can you do that with, with a stranger? How easy is that to do with someone you, you don't know? You, you sense the kind of the barrier, like, I don't really know this person. I can't, I don't even know what they're going through. Is this person even tempted with, falling away. I mean, the more you know someone, the more you can apply all these one another's to their lives. 
The same goes for Hebrews 3.13. If you flip back just a few chapters to that, a similar passage, Hebrews 3.13 in a sense, similar, he says, but encourage one another day after day, so long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The sin, we still have the sinful flesh pumping out sinful desires, threatening to harden anyone who does not faithfully walk by the Spirit, put off uh, sin, kill the flesh, and follow Christ. And notice, he knows we can't really do that alone. You're not meant to run the race alone. You're easy prey for the enemy and your own flesh to being deceived when you're alone. So he calls on us to encourage one another that we wouldn't be hardened. And again, you, well, you certainly can't do that alone. And you also, you're, that's not really going to happen to you or, or by you. If you're just that casual Sunday morning attendee, you come, you sit in the back, you leave early. You're not encouraging anyone that they won't be hardened by the dece- deceitfulness of sin. And, and likely you're not personally being encouraged by anyone. And maybe the sermon might speak to you and encourage you, but on a personal level, you're, you're not doing this. You're not playing your part and no one's benefiting from your encouragement as well. These are things that need to happen in the church. I'll read a few of these for you. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And it says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And understanding believers struggle with the flesh, struggle with sin. They have burdens. And they also have trespasses. And we're called to step into the lives of another or, or others rather and, and help them in their pursuit when they fall. We talked about how to reprove, how to rebuke. Remember that lesson? You do that and you, you do that toward their restoration that they're restored to Christ in the church. And also you're there with them helping bear their burdens through prayer, through support. And that fulfills the law of Christ to love them as you love yourself. I'll read just a few more here. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you are doing. That, that command is given to the whole church that we're encouraging one another, building up one another. He says in verse 12, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So he, he gives them a little word that they should appreciate, basically their shepherds, their leaders who, who do a work of encouraging them. But what he says before and after, he makes clear that it's not just the job of the leaders to do this work. He says, hey, give a little extra appreciation to your leaders and shepherds because of all they do in your life and their diligent labor for you and in instructing you. But you know the verse after that, It says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That verse comes right after. It's not addressed to the leaders. It's addressed to the whole church. We urge you, brethren. And so that that work, that is the work of accountability. It's personal. Someone's unruly, you admonish them. Someone's faint-hearted, you encourage them. Someone's weak, you help them. You're patient with all of them. It's expecting, Paul's expecting the whole church to participate in these shepherding activities. And this is, this is personal discipleship. It's really no different than what we've been talking about throughout. But bringing it back to a small group setting, this, this needs to be fostered in that small group setting. You're not going to get this, per se, from a Sunday morning sermon. You get it in a corporate sense, but in a personal sense where someone can speak into your life. They, they see you being unruly and they know you and love you enough to admonish you in love. Or they know what you're going through. They know you're just broken. They see how faint-hearted you are and that they can speak to encourage you. Or they know you're weak. You just don't know better and they'll, they're going to help you along. That requires a, a relationship. It's a personal thing. And really a, a small group atmosphere, that, that's a place where these types of relationships are going to be fostered, developed, and then flourish. Now, talking more about accountability, some of the practicals, it's not a place for harsh judgment. You know, in a small group setting, you're going to find that 
through Bible study, through, through some of the sharing time. You're holding up God's word as a mirror to, to your life, to the lives of everyone. And that's going to convict. It's going to judge. It's going to show where we fall short. But we're not doing this, this accountability in a, in a sense of harsh judgment or a spirit of pride or, or self-righteousness. We're really doing so out of love and help. This requires humility, where you're always looking to yourself first. You're, you're evaluating yourself, holding yourself accountable first and foremost. But there comes a time where we can help play that role of the admonisher, the reprover, helping others look at themselves in the mirror of God's word as well. It's something we're called to do. And in response to this, as we fall short, others fall short, we're there to minister God's word, his mercy and grace to them in their need, help them repent, help them grow. We're there just to run the race, bear their burdens, to pray for them diligently, to overcome that sin, and then to really get involved in their lives more than just you know an hour a week. How can I help my brother make no provision for the flesh? How can I help my sister you know, overcome this issue? We're going to pray diligently and, and even get more involved. And speaking of the practice of accountability, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It requires a relationship of trust. And those relationships build over time where people are convinced that if I, if I share this serious sin struggle I have with this person, I'm not convinced. They're not going to just air my dirty laundry or use this against me. That they really have my best interest in mind so I can, I can divulge something I'm really battling with. And, you know, most people have that thing. They're not an open book. They're guarded. And they have a, a serious struggle, maybe a serious marital strife or a personal struggle and that they're ashamed of it. They don't want to put it out into the light for that fear of judgment. And so, look, on a Sunday morning, you're not going to come and tell everyone your deepest, darkest sin struggle. But in a small group, to get to that point where, like we just read James 5.16, in an appropriate, appropriate measure, you can confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Uh, you're going to build the type of trust where you can do that. I know these people aren't going to wound me. They love me. They care about me. They're sinners too. I've seen what's on the inside too. And there can be finally that honesty where I tell you, when you finally put your sin into the light, and that comes by no longer hiding it in that dark little corner of your heart, but you confess it to the Lord and even to others, like James 5.16 says, you really begin to, to gain a foothold on it. And it's part of actually repentance, obviously confessing it to the Lord. But to see how much God uses accountability to help you overcome sin with others, it, it goes a long way. And when that, when that trust is fostered, accountability just looks like a time of honesty, sharing just your struggles in running the race. What are your fears, doubts, sins, temptations, challenges, afflictions, persecutions? Whatever you're going through, you're going to have some brothers and sisters who can stand next to you, support you, urge you on, carry And this, this kind of carries on throughout the week. We've done this before with some, some guys. They've someone with a real you know, temptation issue. And we want to see them not fall, but to find the way of escape or stand up under it, right? And so we're going to pray for them throughout the week, not just once, but throughout. And take turns just calling them or texting them speaking truth into their lives, ministering the word of God, which always convicts. But these are some things we can do to, and we can't, you know, make people do anything or control how they live, but you enter into this two-way relationship with someone else, and it's just an avenue for helping others be convicted, be reproved, be encouraged by the word. And I've seen it countless times. God really does use this to help people grow. Really, it's really just an extension of the ministry of his word. We're helping, we're always pointing people back to his word, uh, but we're just, we're, we're being an avenue of getting it in their minds throughout the week and praying for them. And it goes a long way. So from Bible study to accountability, there should be a couple major pillars in any really small group ministry. And as I mentioned in the end, a third one's going to be prayer. A third one, a third pillar, a third main aspect of a small group is going to be prayer. Of course, largely related to accountability, but it goes beyond. Personal prayer should have a large presence in small groups. Yeah, we pray on Sunday mornings, but it's corporate prayer. It's pastoral prayer. It's not like you praying for things, for others, for various requests. Hopefully you do that on your own, but 
Small groups, they're a perfect place to foster such prayer. We read earlier, Colossians 1, how Paul prayed for them always. We would do well to follow his example, just constantly praying for those in our lives. It's a biblical prayer. Remember, he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that they might walk in a manner worthy of his calling. We should be praying that for one another as well. Same goes for Ephesians 6, 18 through 19. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. You know, God is delighted when his people gather, they devote themselves to prayer. It's an expression of humility, trust, dependence on God, a.k.a. faith. Then he uses it to, to help others run the race. He, we're commanded to pray for one another. He says at all times, he's constantly on the lookout for others. We're on alert in the spirit for ourselves and for others. How can this not you know, play a, a vital role in, in a small group personal ministry? So small groups should set some time aside for prayer. We're not talking about, you know, five minutes tacked on to the end but an appropriate substantial amount of time. And typically after the accountability time where you get a chance now to, to pray for one another, pray for the needs of the group, but you can go beyond that. You should go beyond that. We're not just thinking about yourselves, but there are many other things to pray for, for the government, for leaders, for the world, for others in the church, just a whole multitude of needs a small group is a perfect time and place for just a, a wheel of prayer in the church. It's constantly moving. Needs are constantly being met, or met through prayer at least. And that helps you not just be self-focused, because as someone mentioned before, that can be a danger to small groups. They become insular and too inward-focused. They only think about themselves. That's an extreme, but you guard against that. The real heart of prayer for the church, even for the world as well. Small group prayer, it's a place where leadership is needed. It's going to be up to the leader to make time for prayer. Prayer is usually the first thing to go when the schedule gets crunched and like, well, we'll just leave it to the end and then, you know, we have two minutes to pray. So it's up to the leader to manage the schedule, keep things moving so you have more than just five minutes. And also be an example of how to pray. You might have some new believers who don't know how to pray or maybe feel uncomfortable praying in front of others. And that's Completely fine at first, we know that, but you can be an example to show them what a prayer life looks like. Also, you want your leaders, or you want to lead your small group to and put some time and effort into their prayer requests. Come prepared with their prayer requests. They've thought about it. Not only does that save time, but it, it really forces the whole group to be introspective and to think about themselves, how they're struggling, and you'll find God actually uses that process to convict and to teach, where you're forced to examine yourself, that you come prepared with this uh, prayer request. That's a good thing. And then in addition, another few you know, practical notes here. The leader should encourage everyone to get a prayer notebook. It really shows and helps you to take prayer seriously, where you actually plan on praying for these requests throughout the week. You plan on remembering them and following up. And you can't do that if you don't write the requests down. Or if you write them on a, a tiny ripped off piece of scratch paper, you're basically communicating, I'll write these down for now, but I'm planning on losing this piece of paper. And so I don't actually care that much about these prayer requests, right? Get yourself a little prayer notebook. You, it shows you care because I trust you do care. And then you can really pray and track requests over a long period of time and just be faithful in it. You know, famous story from my seminary, an uh, old professor named Dr. Roskup, and he's notorious for his prayer life. He'd pray for a lot of his students and just ask them for prayer requests and then write them down. And months would go by. And this happened to me and a lot of us where he'd come up to you and say, hey, how'd that one you know, prayer request for that issue you're having with that landlord go? And you would think like, what are you talking about? I don't even remember that. It was like your own request that you forgot. <laughs> and he'd been remembering and praying for it. It's a rebuke to like all of us because he was just, he outclassed everyone and actually caring about a prayer request. We treat the prayer requests of others and ourselves so flippantly, but he was just there faithfully for months, still praying for something, getting updates. 
it's that worthy example. So anyway, just make sure prayer is a prominent place in small groups. Between the ministry of the word and accountability and prayer, these three pillars are going to do a lot just to, to foster that and promote that Christ-likeness. And they're all, they're, these all should be central in any uh, small group or discipleship group ministry. So these three are the main ones, Bible study, accountability, and prayer, that they must be present. We're going to do three, well, we're going to add on here three secondary activities. These just come naturally. They're going to flow from the primary three. So they're going to be in any small group. They should be, but we're going to call them three secondary activities. Not that they're necessarily less important, but just to make a little distinction from the main things, here are some secondary activities in a small group. First, fellowship. Number one, fellowship. Fellowship biblically may be defined as communion with God, which results in a communion with God's people. Our fellowship primarily is with God, but that puts us into a special familial relationship with other children of God. We have a a common participation in their lives. There's a special partnership where we aim to live life together and worship God together. The word for fellowship, most often used koinonia, to partner with, to associate with others. It's really living life together. It's the picture of fellowship in the church. Because it's a, it's a family. It's a new family. You live life together with your family, right? It's a sharing in life. And it should be a natural part of the church. We don't really, we shouldn't need to be commun- uh, commanded to fellowship with one another. It, it should just be natural to, a uh, natural outcome of living life in the church. We see that first John 1, 7, that as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see it reflected in the example of the early church, Acts 2, 42. These new believers, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Just natural. It's what these new believers do when they gather. They're going to fellowship. They're going to pray. They're going to be devoted to the teaching. This should be natural. In fellowship or partnership in the Christian life, it's going to express itself in prayer, in accountability, like we discussed above. It's present on Sunday mornings. It's present anytime Christians gather, but it does go beyond. And think about like having a sibling. You're two separate people. You live two separate lives. You oftentimes do your own thing, but you are related And so you share much of life together. There's a lifetime friendship and association. And if your sibling is ever in need, well, you're going to help them. You're going to go to great length to help them out. The church is meant to reflect such a family relationship. Because in Christ, well, now we are siblings. We are spiritual brothers and sisters. And this means to a large degree, we should live life together. We're in the same spiritual household, so we should naturally spend time together, not just on a Sunday morning. You should, I trust, want your pool of friends to come from the church, not the world, because you're, you're out of the world. You've been called to the kingdom of light. You've so, less, so, so little left in common with those in the world. It would be a natural desire for you to want to spend time with your new family. You're delighted to spend time with those in the household of God. That should be the case. And anyway, small groups, they're a special outlet for fellowship and for a deep fellowship. It leads you to spend more life-on-life time with fellow believers. And really, lifetime spiritual bonds grow strongest in that smaller setting. That only makes sense, though, right? The more time you spend with someone, the, the greater that bond will be. The deeper relationship, the deeper trust forms. And that leads to, by the way, it feeds back to greater accountability, greater prayer, you look at a small group on day one versus year, you know, day one, year two, and you see just such a difference in, in the prayer and the accountability and the t- togetherness because, well, relationships have formed. I know this person, I care about them, and they know me, they care about me, I trust them, I know they're, they're on my side, we're running together. That, that really goes a long way to fulfilling all the one another's that are a part of small group ministry. And so this is why Social activities are promoted among the church and in small groups. We always have to caution against small groups becoming just social clubs or social cliques. 
That's why we're going to study the Bible. We're going to uh, pray. We're going to keep these distinctively Christian. But at the same time, we're not just a group of monks that we just meet to study the Bible. And I don't care about anything else but studying the Bible. And I don't really care about you and your life and your challenges. I'm just, we're just here to study the Bible. It is a means to an end of worship, of discipleship, right? We're not just studying the Bible for its own sake. Even Paul, remember, prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they might walk in a manner worthy of his calling, being pleasing to him in all respects. And that, that's, again, that's, that's our goal here, right? To, to worship Christ and to know him. And so having some social activity should be a part of small groups. It's, it's just natural, right? You're with your family. You're going to do things with your family. Right, you're going to go to the movies with your family. You're going to go on that hike with your family. And now you have a spiritual family. So it's only natural. Like, you're going to go to the movies anyway. Why not go with your spiritual family? You're going to go on that hike anyway. Why not go with your spiritual family? And the more you do that, and the more you're just living life together, that's what fellowship is, you're going to see the, the deeper bonds of trust and relationship form. And the, the, the one another's will be more meaningful. That encouragement, that rebuke, that reproof, that help, will be much more meaningful when that relationship is present versus absent. So it's good to foster as much togetherness as possible among siblings in God's household. I can testify, and I bet most of you can as well, that you know, think to your previous church, if you have one, or your previous church experience, and the people from your previous church that you're still connected to, if there are any, it's going to be the people, at least in my experience, that you're in a small group with or a small setting with someone you became well acquainted with in, in a small group. I can testify to that at least, and I trust a lot of you can as well. And again, this is not to say we should neglect others in the body, but we are limited to the number of meaningful relationships we can have, right? I think we all know that. We never neglect others, and that's why as a church we, we try and do events to mix the body at large, like these dinners for eight or in-home potlucks or men's breakfast or women's events. You try and mix people together, but we can only have so many deep relationships. We're we're just limited by time and space. It is what it is. And so it'd be better if everybody had some personal relationships, some personal discipleship relationships with a few others in the church. Not to the neglect of the whole body, but it should have its place. Personal discipleship has great value. And when you have these meaningful relationships When fellowship thrives, it really leads to service. It leads to meeting the practical needs of your brothers and sisters. In Acts 2, remember it said uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Right after it says, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. You know, the the context behind that, right after Pentecost, you have these first 3,000 people who got saved. A lot of them were just pilgrims. They were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, and they get saved, and they decide not to go back home. They're going to stay longer to hear about Christ, to to sit under the apostles' teaching. But that means you got, you know, a couple thousand homeless people in need of great hospitality, but there's something big is going on. This new church is starting, and so they need food, shelter, clothing. It was a hospitality crisis. And so you had a lot of the wealthy Jews in Jerusalem who got saved, like, well, I'll sell everything. We're going to support this new thing called the church. And that's what was going on. The point I'm making though, is that that drive to serve these people who were like, they're strangers. I don't know them. It came from, from fellowship, with that common bond, that common union in Christ, it, that fellowship led to service. And so that's the second secondary pillar in small groups, in first fellowship, second service. You're going to find this to be a natural consequence, a natural outcome, but we'll call it a second of our secondary pillars. You grow connected to others. When you see their needs, you're going to feel compelled to help them. When you see a random stranger, maybe he broke his leg in an accident, he needs help getting food at the market, you know, might feel bad. But are you really going to volunteer like one day every week for the next three months to help them? This is a random stranger you've never met. Maybe if there's like a witnessing opportunity, but you know, probably not. You, you don't know them at all. Like they have family for that. They should have family for that. You're, you're probably not going to do it. But if your sibling was in that situation, 
They broke their leg. They needed marketing for three months. Would you do it? You probably would. It's just a consequence of human relationships. And so it goes in the church. As you're connected to others, it's going to lead you. It's going to lead rather to practical needs being met in the body. You're just living life together. You've got a spiritual sibling. They're, they're having a hard time. And you will feel compelled in Christ to help them that they're your brother or sister. You're just going to help them out. Someone's going through financial hardship. You're going to see the small group members pitching in to help them. Or someone who's sick and suffering. You're going to see that the small group members offering them meals, doing visitation. They're going to be the, the practical boots on the ground. They know the needs the most. And that they have the strongest relationship. It's just a natural outcome that they would step in to serve. And it's a wonderful thing when it happens. It glorifies God. He's delighted in seeing his people transformed from mere service recipients to service providers. And again, at least in my experience, you see that level of personal service flourish the most in a small group because that's where relationships flourish the most. We're going to finish with the last one, number three, evangelism. A third of these uh, secondary pillars, evangelism. You know, small groups, they don't meet explicitly for the purpose of evangelism. You might have a group like that, I guess, an evangelism training group. But you know, typically, these are meetings for believers for the purpose, purpose of edification. But anytime you have believers growing in grace, evangelism should be a fruit. And small groups should not think of themselves as a final destination, that they're just there only for themselves. It's not a place of just comfort and ease. They should be thought of as a, a place of challenge and growth in the Christian life. And that's going to include evangelism. That, that needs to be a fruit, an outcome of a vibrant small group. Small groups should not be overly self-consumed and self-focused, as if the only thing that matters is the people in their group and overcoming their problems. And everything else, we don't care about. We just care about these people. No, we, we guard against that as well. And having a heart for the lost helps. Because a lot of people have needs, not just the people in this group. You know, people outside. People outside the church, they're still lost and dead in their sins. That should be our concern as well. And so small groups, I think they should really in time, just by a natural consequence of Christian growth, really become a home base for evangelism in the church. It's a place where you can grow a heart for evangelism. You can get some training for evangelism. You can pray evangelistically and even put it into practice where the whole small group can, can do something together evangelistically and support one another. Small groups are a great place for believers to overcome their fear of man and even get equipped with the basic knowledge of defending the faith. It should be a, a a breeding ground for evangelism. You know, it should always be in the mind of the small groups and the small group leader to reproduce themselves, as we've said, to make disciples. And we've learned that begins with evangelism by preaching the gospel. Church growth ultimately is not about just stealing sheep and constantly moving sheep around, but making disciples by preaching the gospel. And that we want that just to be the, the atmosphere of any small group. It's Christ-centered, it's gospel uh, fixated, and you know, the people we meet, the people we interact with, we're going to, you know, we're still full of Christ and the gospel, like a, a cup filled to the brim with water. They just bump into us, it's going to spill out onto them. And just that, that whole heart and attitude, you want to see that fostered in a small group. And it should, it should breed in that small group where they're, you know, they really have a heart and a passion for evangelism. Don't you think the church needs that more? And we would like, we like to see that in our small groups as well. Well, that's as far as we're going to get with our time tonight, but hopefully this has already given you a glimpse of what small groups are about, and that you're starting to see the value of a small group ministry as you see what activities they promote. In a sense, it's nothing new. We've just taken all that we've learned from the Bible about you know, life in the church, shepherding, discipleship, and we're just applying it in that narrow, smaller setting. And you see a lot of special value come out, though, when you apply it in that small setting. We're going to keep doing that. There's more to learn. We've got one more lesson. This is a two-parter, so we'll come back next Sunday night and finish up. Because it's not enough just to talk about the small group activities. Like, that's good. That's important. But we need to cover some small group principles, small group dangers, small group evaluation, and a little bit more. So we'll do that next week, but this will serve as our final dose for now. I guess our time's up.
our guy's here, so our time's up. Oh, my guy's there too. Okay, so our time's really up. But let's pray. We'll be done. Father in heaven, thank you for our time together and the study in your word. And we thank you for the ministry of the word and how it can work in our lives, both corporately and personally. You've called a people, a body, and we're not just a, a building, we're a people. And not just a people, even a family that merits relationship, that requires relationship to thrive. You've, you've placed us in relationship by calling us into communion with yourself. You've now made us in communion with one another as well. And, and you expect a lot out of that relationship. You command a lot for that relationship to grow, that the whole body might be built up in Christ as one. And small groups is, is just a key element to that growth and to these one another. So I pray we take it seriously, implement it at this church, and see Christ-likeness flourish here as we just pursue Christ in life with one another. So bless us and uh, these efforts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.